Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. All right, y'all, so uh, it is my honor to be with y'all today. First of all, happy Father's Day. Uh, second of all, it is, um, I'm sorry that I haven't uh, done a war room lately for y'all, but to make up for that, we have a very, very special presentation for you tonight. Joel McDermott is going to be joining me for a, uh, a talk on the aftermath of the problem of slavery in Christian America. And... Uh, this has been just absolutely one of the hugest, hugest books of our, uh, of our current setting. And uh, if you've been under a rock lately, Joel McDermott is the first one to bring the ethical, judicial application of the problem of slavery in Christian America uh, to the forefront. And uh, we're going to have that interview tonight, and I'm going to be bringing him on this forum, Facebook Live, video setting. So let me bring him on right now. Dr. Joel McDermott is on camera with it. Now, hold on. Before I introduce you, Dr. McDermott, before I introduce you, <laughs> yeah. before I introduce you, uh, quick shout out to the whole Thomas Nation down there. First uh, Corinthians 12, 26 says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. A bald head right here is for Jeremiah Thomas. And so dedicating this episode right now to uh, to Jeremiah Thomas. First time I uh, I saw Jeremiah, he was, it was on a live Facebook video. He was standing on top of a bus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God into the darkness of a child sacrifice center. And in my head, I was like, the rising generation is storming the gates of hell. That was what came to my mind. What an impressive young brother. And that the Lord has reserved a remnant to stomp Moloch and his, uh, and his forces back to hell. What an indication that the future belongs to those that hunger and thirst for, thirst for righteousness and justice. And uh, this, um, this battle that Jer- Jeremiah, that you're going through uh, with, with this cancer, wow, it's amazing. Um, it shows that God's light is in the center of it all. Uh, in in uh, Joel McDermott's latest uh, latest edition of the uh, of the Devoted Word podcast, he showed that the New Jerusalem in Revelation twenty one and twenty two needs no sun, no moon, and no stars, and that is a reality now. Uh, as you are lighting up the darkness, Jeremiah, uh, using this trial as a tool, um, and one of his wishes was that he would uh, that he would uh, that he would get to. He says, "How many sixteen year old kids are like this?" He said. That uh, given the choice to meet anyone like LeBron James, anybody, he said, I want to talk to Governor Greg Abbott about abolishing abortion in the state of Texas. That's who I want to talk to. Unreal. So, Jeremiah, salute. Unreal. Wow. Um, So with that as the backdrop, with that as a backdrop, we're going to be talking about the aftermath aftermath of Dr. Joel McDermott's book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. Now, uh, before I became a Christian Reconstructionist, I was on the, uh, the American civil religion circuit, uh, the conservative circuit. I used to, uh, used to pump the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, which was written by a socialist to destroy the American vision of localism. I railed against black athletes for refusing to stand for the national anthem, which was written by a racist 
uh, district attorney named Francis Scott Key, who made, made black lives a living hell in his district and made sure an abolitionist died a brutal death in his jail, all covered in the book by Dr. Joel McDermott. And then we wonder today why, why in the Moloch State plantations, they're not hearing the conservative Christian message. We wonder why. Um, you know, but it, it doesn't surprise me that those who used to run with me on the flag waving stuff uh, aren't there yet. Uh, they, they deserve some patience. I was right. I was there, too. It does surprise me, though, that Reconstructionists have not rallied behind this message. Um, it's crazy. You know, when I did a podcast, uh, uh, you know, supporting uh, the uh, the book that I actually narrated for Reconstructionist Radio, um, and I did a podcast uh, applying it to to uh, on the on the with boots on the ground in the public square, I was opposed by uh, Christian Reconstructionists uh, who I greatly respected. I just thought that they misunderstood what I said. So I clarified and all that other kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we find out that this same group of Christian Reconstructionist leaders has a have a racist kinist uh, a speaker who's going to be speaking at their at their the whole time. They had this guy booked who was a, it's like it's, it, it's unbelievable. So uh, and Dr. Joel McDermott led the charge in, in that whole matter. And, and a lot of y'all know what I'm talking about. Look, by the end of night, by the end of 2017, Joel McDermott's re- uh, release of the problem of slavery of Christian America was an earth earthshaking, groundbreaking event. We interviewed him uh, and that interview is is online in Reconstructionist Radio. Uh, Bill Evans interviewed Joel McDermott and he talked about why he wrote the book and all that other kind of stuff. So we're not going to go over that. We're going to go over the aftermath of the book right now. We're going to see what uh, it's been like for Dr. McDermott after he exposed the complicity of Christians in America with slavery. Uh, and that there, he shows the direct parallels of the abortion Holocaust and the complicity of the pro-life movement uh, with that. Uh, they use the Bible to defend chattel slavery. And today, pro-life movement professionals use the Bible to defend pragmatism in writing the very laws that make abortion legal. Uh, there was really no time in our history when America was not complicit with child sacrifice. Justifying American hi- heroes in the past that participated in slavery is the same as holding up contemporary Christians who participated in the abortion Holocaust. Final thought before we bring Joel on. Deuteronomy, if, if we if we look out in the public square and we see that the Christianity that we're pushing uh, isn't popular, it's easy to just say, oh, well, you know, they're pagans. They don't want the things that belong to God, so on and so forth. Deuteronomy 4 says that the pagans will look on God's law and they'll see the justice and want it. Justice is longed for the most by those who are denied it. One third of black Americans are going to be one third of black males will be in jail at some point in time during their life. Those who say they follow King Jesus and that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne ought to have a message that they can receive and that they would want in these Moloch state plantations to smash the chains uh, that keep them enslaved. Now, without further ado, my man. My favorite, one of my favorite, him and him and Bo Marinoff are our favorite scholars here at Reconstructionist Radio. Dr. Joel McDermott, author of The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. Welcome to the war room. How you doing, big dog? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh man, it's just uh, it's just so awesome that you could join us for this. Thank you so much. Can man. you hear me all right? You, man. Thank you very much. Can you hear me just fine? I can hear you absolutely fine. And if y'all uh, in the audience are having trouble hearing anything. Now would be the time to say something. You got to help me with my tech skills. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, you're looking good, Dr. McDermott. 
Are you ready? I'm just trying to get the closer I get to this phone, I feel like I'm about to kiss you. So I, I'm just, I don't know where to go closer or back further away. I want to be heard, but I don't want to get that close. <laughs> well, man, I, I, I'm a, uh, I'm a pretty dude. I got you know, with, with my bald head. I look even, I look even flyer. You know what I mean? So, hey, yeah. Uh, hey, look, so, um, how many times have you been called a social justice warrior uh, because of, because of you writing this book here? Uh, a bunch. Uh, you, uh, not just this book, but the, but the larger scope of even talking about race. Uh, and it, it comes, to be honest, it comes from a range of folk. So even just mentioning statistical disparities uh, between how many times black young men are tased in the same apples to apples type encounters with police officers, with others, um, you know, not even drawing any conclusions from it necessarily, just stating the statistical disparity. I've been called a social justice warrior for that. All the way to even the stuff I've written on slavery, people call me a social justice warrior. It's it's really a knee jerk reaction from people who don't have any other uh, intellectual ammunition. So. That that kind of thing, the social justice warrior, the cultural Marxist, the Marxist, I mean, uh, imagine that, opposing Southern slavery, someone calls you a Marxist, not just a cultural Marxist, a Marxist, <laughs> <laughs> which, which, of course, proves they really don't know what they're talking about. But anyway, uh, yeah. those kinds of things I've, I've long since begun to just kind of I used to take somewhat a little bit of a delight in it because it was like, you know, the, the old saying about if, you, if you're taking flack, you must be over the target. But that long since lost its uh, novelty. And, and really, from some quarters, it's like those people are so far gone uh, that you expect it. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you think, well, he would say that. Uh, you know, if when, when I say something and I can write down ahead of time, like uh, what was that game that uh, Johnny Carson used to play with the envelope, envelope and he read what was in the envelope before he opened it, you know, and it, I can I can do that with some people nowadays. I can write anything. I can predict what their reactions are going to be, and I will be right 100 percent of the time. Uh, those people I've quit worrying about. Uh, but there are a lot of people in the more general mainstream conservative world. And you're, you're say, I'm seeing it in the race issue. I'm seeing it a lot also with a lot of the discussion going on in the PCA and in the Southern Baptist Convention over the role of women in the church. And, and I'm far from being even sympathetic to the liberal views on some of those things. But even if you just discuss it, the, the knee-jerk reactions you see from some people to immediately jump to the cultural Marxist uh, uh, retort. Uh, it's really, really sad because this is coming from people who are otherwise well-educated, understand theology, but when it comes to social issues, they're so poorly trained. And this is, this is really my thesis. They are so poorly trained in biblical law. They've got nothing left to fall back on except cultural norms. And if you're going to fall back on cultural norms, you've either got to be a liberal or a mainstream conservative or perhaps a libertarian, but there's so small a percentage of those, they don't really count. Uh, and what we see in the conservative de denominations, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, is that 
uh, we fall back on traditional conservatism. The problem is traditional conservatism, for all of its decent theology when it comes to sin and soteriology and things of that nature, didn't have any footing at all on social issues from a biblical perspective. It has always followed the right wing of the Enlightenment. And this is, I'm, I'm probably getting way ahead of your interview here, but this is a point Gary North has made, a bit at pains to make his entire career, is that people don't understand there were two wings to the Enlightenment. The left wing of the Enlightenment, we all know and we understand, that was the Jacobins, that was the French Revolution, that is the Marxist, that is the, the uh, true humanist, that is the one-worldist, the, the globalist elites, and all those people. We understand that. But what happens in conservative Christianity, especially on social issues, is the default to the right wing of the Enlightenment, which has always been there. Edmund Burke, uh, a lot of other names you could name. Uh, people who are falling back on natural law ideas, natural philosophy ideas, who, who were not taking their cues from Old Testament or biblical law, uh, certainly, uh, well, in just at all. And, but they take cultural norms that were conservative, which, meant, which by the way, let's get on the same page on what the word conservative means. It means don't change the stuff, all right? We've, we've got this institution that's come to us through history. Don't change it or dangerous things could happen. And that is the, that's the core of conservatism. And it's a, it's a fear-based ideology. It says, look, this has worked for us so well up until now. If you change it, we don't know what might happen. The, the foundations of society are going to come unglued. And if you're a liberal, you're wanting to, to, to demolish that thing, blow it apart. Start a revolution. Pick up the pieces. If you are a biblical uh, theologian who's based his social theory on biblical law, you're looking at the left and you're saying, that's crazy. That's pagan. That's Satan himself. But you're also looking at the right and saying, look, there has to be progress made according to biblical law. It critiques your institutions and you're failing. And, and the traditional conservative side says, no, 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 no. We don't want to change anything. Let it change gradually on its own. If it needs to change, it'll change. Well, that didn't work for slavery. It didn't work for Jim Crow. It didn't work for racism. And it doesn't work for a whole host of other things. And by not changing things according to the Bible and leaving them the way they were, we were defaulting to a humanistic conservatism. And that's what Gary was all, have been trying to teach his whole life as he taught theonomy, was that there's a right wing on the Enlightenment, and we're so tied to it as conservatives that uh, we end up hurting ourselves worse than perhaps even if we became liberals on some issues. Now, that's a debate we could have, of course. But the right wing of the Enlightenment is there. It is a reality, and it has never been taken seriously by Christians. And as a result, we have steadily lost ground to the, to the leftists on social issues because they take them seriously. Instead of saying, no, just don't touch it, don't change it, they take it seriously, and they end up being the ones on the vanguard of the things that are obviously provable to the world as moral issues. Yeah. The civil rights movement, okay? It's, there's no dispute over that in the 1960s. There was no dispute over the humanity of slavery in the 1850s and 60s. It was just the, this dogged enlightenment, really, but humanistic conservatism that said, no, don't change the stuff. And of course, at the, at the deepest level of that, 
is a is a, a an entrenched elite who are getting fat off of it. And they will use the traditional conservative arguments to protect their pocketbook and their bottom line and bring along a majority of the population with them who are also conservative. So there's a lot said there. But the bottom line is that there are two wings of the Enlightenment. There's a left wing and a right wing. And we have to critique both of them from the perspective of biblical law. And if we don't go back to biblical law, the leftists will win. And there is no discussion about that. They will win and they will defeat us over time. We will see right-wing reactions in history, and we're seeing one worldwide right now, by the way. It's not just make America great again. Uh, Americans don't realize that there's a make America great again uh, movement happening in nations all over the country. It's in Italy. It's in Britain. Of course, Brexit was a big thing, but it's in India. India is a huge place where it's happening. Do you know that they kicked out? Do you know that they kicked out Compassion International? probably one of the largest ministries in the world, taking care of poor people, taking care of the, these very poor rural children, giving them educations, food, water, shelter, clothing, teaching them to read by the millions. India kicked them out wholesale. Goodbye. Don't come back. Because in India, they, they knew they were teaching the kids Christianity in this mission. And there's an extreme right-wing Hinduist nationalist movement in India right now. It is make India great again from a Hindu perspective. Wow. And they kicked out anybody who's proselytizing against traditional Hinduism. So this is happening all over the world right now. And I'm convinced it's, well, the, the left has pushed too far. The left has pushed way too far. You're seeing it. That's why Jordan Peterson is such a huge phenomenon right now. Wow. He's a humanist to the core. The guy's ideology is every bit as dangerous as anything Marx ever taught. Uh, Jungian psychology, come on, it's occultism to the core. And yet this guy's popular among right-wingers because he's giving right-wing reactionary type uh, ideas. And he's part of this pushback on the side of the right. So this is happening worldwide, but it's just two sides of the same humanist coin. In the long run, it's going to be a great detraction and there's going to be a swing way back to the left again. Eventually, it may be 10, 20 years before this happens, but it will happen. And whatever ground the right thinks it's regained now, it will lose wholesale when that time comes. So that's kind of my general paradigm, um, all from the question, how many times have I been called a social justice warrior? Here's the bottom line. If you, all justice is social, there is no justice, justice that's not social. If you are in favor of justice, then you have to be in favor of social justice. Now, the problem is you don't want to go with the way the left defines social justice, but the right is too chicken to talk about social justice. And they don't want to go to the Bible because the Bible says very hard things about social justice that condemn the right also when it comes to public schools, when it comes to our failure on abortion, when it comes to taxation of property. Come on, property taxation? What are you talking about? Uh, down the line, it condemns the thing that the right fights to have. A standing military, a, a an international police force military, that was a leftist invention from day one. That is empire. That is Julius Caesar. Come on. Where are the Christians standing would that up? Be the, would go. that be the right or the left side of the Enlightenment, executive law enforcement, Dr. McGurns? Right or left side? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, of course, again, it's two sides of the same coin. Executive law enforcement, you can find... All the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back into 
I, I would take it back to Genesis four and the way of Cain. Um, there's a, there's a resource we carry on our website in our store uh, by a friend of mine named Brent Allen Winters. It's a big, thick, fat book called The Excellence of Common Law. And he traces the history of executive law, which, which I would call civil law or Roman, later came to be Roman civil law. And what, what I would call biblical law, which, which is the common law tradition, which, which there are various things that float under that name. I'm speaking of the biblical law tradition. He traces those from Genesis forward and gives you the most thorough education you will ever have on those topics. And you can see that executive law process beginning already in, in the city of Cain with the sons of Cain and how they handle themselves. Uh, there's a whole discussion that needs to be had on that when it comes to psychology and the psychology of building walls, of uh, humanistic legacy, naming things after yourself and your children, politics. There's a whole whole discussion that comes out of Genesis 4 and technology, all kinds of stuff. But but you can certainly see it in ancient Rome in the, in the time that the apostle, of course, it came through Babel, too, and the whole uh Beasts that Daniel sees, the four beasts, Nebuchadnezzar, that was an executive law system, top-down, fiat from the top-down executive government. It goes, of course, it goes through the four waves of the four beasts. It goes from from Babylon to, what is it, Medo-Persia, and then to Greco-Macedonia, and then to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire becomes this seven-headed beast that's talked about in Revelation. And just, just read all through there of the type of law they had. It was, Caesar was the word. He was the final word and everything was top down. And that's why the the, the centurion says to Jesus, he says, uh, you know, you don't have to come to my house to heal my daughter. I understand how authority works, but it's top down. You say the word, it's going to happen. Okay, so he was really projecting his understanding of the authoritarian world onto Jesus. Now, of course, in the spiritual realm with Jesus as king, it really does work that way. But trying to get people to understand it's not supposed to work that way in the real world. We're supposed to serve each other. And the institutions are there to protect the little man from the powers that be uh, and, and much more. You can see it all through scripture, but it certainly is, is endemic in the Roman Empire. And that's why they killed the early Christians. They they would not say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord, and they wouldn't back down off of that. And so they executed it. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, Constantine, really his successors, but Constantine also, basically took the worst of that pagan law that had been used to persecute and execute Christians and basically flipped it on its head. He said, okay, we're Christians now. Uh, we're going to be Christians now, and our legal system is going to be Christian. So he took the legal system that was in place and moved it over basically as a new book of law with the same laws in place. And just where it said, you know, Romans may kill Christians, they marked out the word Christians and put pagans in place of it. And so instead of persecuting Christians, they started persecuting pagans. Now, it wasn't so bad under Constantine, but he set the mold. And by the time you get to Theodosius, and certainly Justinian, uh, it is a top-down system par excellence. And they they had a whole range of laws for which they would execute people. And it was nothing more than Roman law rehashed, baptized, if you will. Yeah. That law kind of gets buried in the dark ages, but it gets resurrected in the, I believe it was 13th century 
in Padua, uh, in there was a, uh, a legal revolution that took place in northern Italy during the height of the papal revolution. They found copies of Justinian, and they, they reimposed it, basically, and that was what became the backbone of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and it became the backbone that was inherited by Melanchthon and Luther, uh, Calvin, and basically all the churches of that era. This is one area where the Reformation did not reform. They inherited the Constantinian system directly from uh, the Roman Catholic Church and imposed it just the way Constantine changed the names uh, Christian to pagan. The the, uh, reformers basically marked out pagan and put in Roman Catholic and everybody else. So they adopted the same system. They all started killing each other. If you're in a Catholic-dominated land, they would execute you for heresy. If you're in a Calvinistic land, it wasn't, wasn't quite as bad. But if there were, there were cases of Lutherans who put Calvinist heretics to death. All of them joined hands together gleefully to put Anabaptists to death, many of whom were just peaceful pacifists. And it was sick. Sure. And, you know, these, these law revolutions had Martin Luther's signature on them and everybody else's. So we've all got blood on our hands. In these traditions, it wasn't until we got to the American system, which I frankly, I think needs a lot more historical work done on the, the development of historical theology into a system which allowed for religious liberty. Now, it's been corrupted since then, I believe. Uh, but like I said, it needs a lot more historical work. But all of this is way off the topic of slavery, which you, you wanted to talk about. I, 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 think, I think it'll weave right in. I'm here in uh, uh, Joe Salon uh, uh, War Room. I got a, a scholar of the New Reformation, Dr. Joel McDermott, on the line with us today. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are talking about the aftermath of the uh, problem of slavery in Christian America. And God is moving history forward. We shouldn't just be uh, fighting to conserve everything for the sake of just conserving it. We're not trying to conserve the elements of the curse, for example. Joel, let's get right into uh, some of these questions that I have for you. Now, you said in our interview prior uh, at the release of your book that your reason for writing initially uh, the problem of slavery in Christian America uh, was to adre- address cr- a criminal justice reform. You didn't want to sit down and write a book on, you didn't sit down and say, you know, I need to write a book on slavery because I'm a social mm-hmm. justice warrior and that's what we do. You said, uh, dang it, I want to write this book on criminal justice reform. But however, obviously the biblical solution is to criminal justice reform includes slavery. And you realized that you had to address that first in order to be taken seriously in our current situation. So now that's been addressed. What's the next step in criminal justice reform? Do you have something for us? Uh, well, unfortunately, writing that book has been put on hold a little bit. I have uh, several other priorities that have cropped up in the meantime. And the other thing is to ask a question like that, what is the next step? Um, there's, there's the question of, okay, what's, what comes next in writing a book about it? There's what comes next in actually doing something about it. Um, and by the way, this is a great, this just popped in my mind, but it, as far as actually doing something about it, you don't have to have a book written on it. <laughs> you've got Bible, you've got biblical law. There, there is nothing like the abolitionist movement and the movement to end abortion and to abolish abortion now that is sweeping across America right now. There's nothing like that 
to get people's attention to talk about the issue of criminal justice reform, because it makes us ask the question, what makes us think we're going to do anything about criminal justice when the government's the criminal? When, when we're the ones murdering babies by the millions, and it's got government sanction, and you've got nine robed Pharisees sitting, well, at least some of them are liberals. You can't call them Pharisees because they don't pretend to be Christians. But you've got these nine robed tyrants in D.C. who are protecting the system. And you've got a thousand, you've got a million uniformed people across the country who will stand up and protect the system. I was appalled when I heard the rationale of Romans 13 given for the separation of these families. Now, I know there's a lot of details there that would take us far afield, but the reaction to it has been right on. It says, yeah, okay, this is the Nuremberg defense, people. You don't stand up and say, I'm just doing my job. I'm just following orders uh, because to get off the hook for for enforcing uh, wicked laws. Every Christian police officer ought to be standing blocking the doors of every abortion clinic. They ought to be the ones protecting the people who are standing up against it. Every senator and representative who is a Christian, every governor who is a Christian, every county commissioner who is a Christian ought to be doing everything they can on this issue to stand up and defy Roe v. Wade in their state and every other federal law that goes with it. So when you ask what's the next step in criminal justice reform, it's like, look, why don't we stand up and start resisting? But as far as little old Joel McDermott and what he can do from his ivory tower, which, you know, a lot of people have accused me of living in an ivory tower. And I've, I've tried to always say, you know, I don't, and I'm starting, maybe I just should embrace it. Okay. I, I live in an ivory tower. All right. I write books and, and people read the books anyway. Amen. What little old Joel McDermott can do is his next step will be to start writing what are the principles of biblical just biblical criminal justice reform. And there's a lot of work on my end to be done on that. Some of it's obvious. One is we need to abolish the prison system. I mean, absolutely. Uh, on the heels of abolishing abortion or simultaneously, absolutely abolish the prison system in the United States of America. It is unbiblical. It makes criminals worse than they are. And the biblical remedy for that is if you have a violent criminal, a murderer or a rapist, you execute them. Okay. So no need to house those guys. If it's a drug criminal, that's not a crime in my book. Okay. Drug addiction is not a crime. Owning or possessing a banned substance is not a crime. That person needs to go into rehab or some other type of program. And uh, there's a lot to be said on this. I was tremendously um, encouraged during the last round of Republican debates. And by, by no means am I a fan of this man. But when Chris Christie started standing up and championing the issue of decriminalizing opioid addiction and, and championing taking these people to rehab instead, okay, and why? Because here's a man who had a dear friend who was wrecked by the system. And if you get caught in the system or if you get wrecked by the system, You'll become one of the greatest advocates against it very quickly. You'll realize the whole civil asset forfeiture regime, awful. All of it's unbiblical, and it is bringing injustice into the land, and it's only going to spread more resentment. It's only going to eventually let the liberals win more and bring more judgment upon us. So that needs to be abolished. The drug war needs to be abolished. Institutions need to be put in place that mimic 
what is called slavery in the Old Testament. Now, it's not slavery as we know it, and that's why I wrote the book. You can't say slavery in this country without the racism attached to it, without the atrocities committed to it. And when I first conceived of this project, I realized unless we stand up and become the fiercest advocates against what happened in American history, you'll never have a hearing from a biblical perspective on criminal justice reform, because you won't be able to say what needs to be said until I build a reputation and we, everybody else associated with us until we build a public reputation as biblical law is the chief critic of what happened to slavery in America with slavery in America. And it was, and that was one of the great surprises to me that came out of the book. The earliest printed critique of slavery in the United States of America was by a Quaker named George Keith in 1693. It was very brief. It was only about five pages, and it had five arguments against slavery. Uh, This would have fit on a flyer if it was condensed. It's very simple. Don't kidnap people. Treat immigrants with respect and love, the same law you would be treated as. And he goes down the line, and and he says... um, Uh, He basically says, if you follow these five biblical law principles, you will end, you will abolish slavery in America right now. And that's all it took was five quotations from Old Testament law. And well, there was actually four. The fifth one was from the book of Revelation in which the beast of Revelation was being judged because it trafficked in the souls of men. And, And the prophecy said, come out from her and be not partakers of her sins, lest you be partakers of her judgment. And so this Quaker in 1693, keep in mind, this is before the abolitionist movement was even going really in Britain, but certainly in America. And he publishes this. Well, of course, it gets completely ignored and it's, it's a, it goes into the dustbin of history. And, and I look back on this now as a historical uh, review and I see this and I think, man, here's theonomy. This guy is a Quaker, but he was a theonomist on this issue. If people would have just listened to theonomy at the time, they would have ended this and they would have spared America of the greatest of the judgment that came upon her for it. And so that message needs to be reverberating again today, that if we had followed theonomy, we would not have had American chattel slavery. We would have not had the atrocities and all that stuff. And I've had to critique, I've I've endured critiques from some of the, the two kingdoms guys like Michael Horton and others who say, oh, well, you look at the Crusades and you look at American slavery. Well, that was all from taking the Old Testament law and trying to apply it in modern times. And I'm saying, no, you guys have missed the boat entirely. You don't understand history or biblical law, because if you did, you would see it was the chief critic of the American civil uh, 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 slavery system. So that was the first rung. And then it was, okay, can we tell the story now to make it, make it as real as possible? Because there are a number of people in our movement who weren't really true biblical theonomists. They weren't trying to build a social theory based on biblical law and let it take them where it may and then go apply it in the world. They were instead trying to protect some tradition, whether it be that Constantinian tradition that came through Calvin or the tradition that came through Robert Dabney and Thornwell and we're Southern Presbyterians and the spin which I record in the book that came in the, after the Civil War, the spin, especially beginning in the 1870s, following all the way up into the 1920s and 30s, 
of oh from the southern guys what the war what really happened with the war and and this uh you know the lost cause mythology and all of that kind of stuff an utter whitewashing of which has got some double entendre in it by the way an utter whitewashing of the history in which uh, scholars have long since noted and there's a great book that came out of athens several years ago on the loss of the civil war in the south and it they made this point that it was defense of the the civil war for the south it was slavery 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 until about 1866 and then suddenly all the propaganda started saying states rights states rights states rights that's all we ever talked about was states rights oh slavery was never really a part of it to begin with and and that has lasted true okay so there's still a few thousand people maybe maybe not quite that many maybe a few hundred people within our movement who still hold on to the mythologized version of southern history instead of knowing the true thing so i wanted to write a history that laid it out as bare as possible as bare as possible and say okay here are the facts you can't these are all original sources these aren't people's opinions this is what really happened and this is all documented try to deny that now okay wow. so and i knew that was going to cause one of two things either those people were going to repent which a few of them have yes yeah um that's true or it was this this book would drive a wedge between those of us who want a biblical law social order and are willing to let that take us where it may a wedge between us and those who are just trying to protect their southern tradition as they know it and certainly that has played out that has become a major wedge now in the uh, reconstructionist movement to where i've seen a lot of discussion on both sides whether should we even allow Joel McDermott to still call himself a reconstructionist <laughs> or some of the same people in the same group say no i'm just done with it myself i'm never going to call myself a reconstructionist ever again so it's kind of funny to see both reactions from yeah. from the same issue but yeah. the bottom line is do you want to reconstruct society according to biblical law as it, as it is applied in the new testament times and that becomes a great discussion but yeah. uh so so then what happens you got violent offenders rape murder execution okay there was never a question about that and by the way we didn't really need mosaic law to tell us that um it was clear under noah that that was the case and and then uh so what and then what about minor offenders okay we've already said drug war and all that kind of stuff that can be taken care of better in other ways i believe and i think history shows it and i think other countries like portugal and other places show that already but what about petty offenses theft burglary or well, burglary is not petty of course but um lesser offenses that aren't pertaining to death well the bible prescribes restitution okay it's so simple and you don't need a prison system to help with restitution that actually makes the problem worse not in many cases restitution is denied to the person who should have gotten it and that person who should have paid it ends up going to be stuck in a cage for several years at the expense of the taxpayers so the person who needs justice is not getting it and the person who needs punishment is getting a different type of punishment than they're warranting and all of society ends up being punished by having to pay for it so it's a ridiculous system it's got to go we need to reinstitute a system of restitution well what's going to happen when you have a guy who steals something and gets caught convicted and has to pay restitution and can't do it it's very clear he has to be put in some kind of work 
service so that he can pay back the guy who, who, who deserves it. Uh, and that is what the Old Testament law would have called slavery. All right. Maybe it's a bad word in our modern parlance, but that system needs to be brought back. And by saying that, we're not talking about the Old South. And the people who do think the Old South was just doing that are absolutely insane. Okay? They're off their rocker, and most of them that I've talked with are not just wrong. They're incorrigible. So uh, that needs to be stated in the clearest terms. But so does the fact that we need to abolish the prison system and bring back a system of restitution, some of which may involve forms of indentured servitude. So those are kind of the, the major highlights of where a discussion on criminal justice will go. And there's a lot to be filled out because there are a lot of other cases that, that need to be addressed. And Awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah, well, we're, we're, lo- we're looking forward to uh, something coming out of that, uh, uh, that American Vision Ivory Tower on how we're going to do that uh, with boots on the ground, some practical application on how we can uh, abolish the, uh, the prison system and, and uh, put in place a biblical model uh, based on restitution. I mean, even if some of the words that were just going through my head as you were talking, like apprenticeship or something like that, all of these words were used by the pro-slavery uh, factions, mm. which is why this book is so darn important. Now, two, two yeah, that's a good point, though. Let me, let me just say that real quick, okay. that what happened was they did try to mask the evil of what they're doing with biblical-sounding terminology, and in some cases, euphemisms like that. The apprenticeships in the North were basically a rehashed form of slavery. Um, and, and that's a, even a biblical criminal justice system, if we had it, could be abused by somebody who was looking to, quote-unquote, enslave somebody through legitimate means in the criminal justice system. Even having a biblical criminal justice system will not eliminate corruption. Um, the case in the scripture to see for that is with uh, Jezebel and Ahab. And they, they steal Nadab, uh, Naboth's vineyard, and they do so by hijacking the legal process. They trump up two false witnesses to accuse him of a capital crime. And so what can you do? In court, it looks legal. To the jury, it looks right. You're right, but it was corrupted at the court. So anything can be abused. But that doesn't mean we don't need to stand up for the biblical nature of it. That will be the system in which the least abuse is possible. And we need to really take it seriously. But go ahead. Question Amen. number two. Amen. Uh, so, so the two groups in our experience that have manifested the most resistance to the problem of slavery in Christian America uh, would be the, uh, the flag-waving evangelicals, who I used to be a representative of, who want the story of America's history to gleam like the city on the hill, right? And, um, of course, uh, the neo-Confederate, Dixie, civic, religion, idolaters, which of these groups? Now, obviously, the former is larger in number uh, and has a lot more political power. But which of these groups do you think you do you perceive as a greater threat to establishing justice in this sphere? The flag waving evangelicals or the neo Confederate Dixie civic religion idolaters? Well, that's a good question, and it's hard to judge. I would say if it's if you judge simply by raw numbers, it's going to be the neocon flag waving evangelicals. Um, but ideologically speaking. It goes back to what I said earlier. They're two sides of the same coins because the neocon civic religion is nothing more than right wing enlightenment. Okay. 
and and the Dixiecrats are the right wing enlightenment of the 19th century. So it's all the same stuff. It's just different versions of the same stuff and different allegiances and different symbols. The bottom line is neither one of those groups really want to go to biblical law and allow their own tradition, traditions and their own selves to be critiqued in a radical way. Because, because that's the problem is, is when biblical law critiques your system, it goes to the root. It goes to the foundations and it shakes you up. And when people don't have their trusted foundations that they've trusted in forever, they get really nervous real quick. And the first thing they get afraid of is the left. Oh, well, the left's going to sweep in and take over, or the, or the immigrants are going to sweep in and take over. So it, it's a real delicate thing. But I would say if you're talking, if you're talking ideological, it's the same stuff. So it's just as dangerous either way. But if you're talking raw numbers, obviously the, the standard conservative tradition that, that wants their jets fly over at the NFL games and, and wants to use the force of law or pressure of some sort to make Colin Kaepernick stand, um, you know, those people are more dangerous because they're much, much more, more numerous. The, yeah. the Dixiecrat types are Dixie, old Dixie types are, you know, they're dwindling in number and, and they're really losing. I, I would say the last time I watched, you know, I've watched from years ago, like League of the South meetings, and there were hundreds of people there. And the, the one I watched from a couple years ago, uh, you know, there was, you, you heard coughing in the audience and there were empty seats everywhere. <laughs> it was like crickets, okay. you know, so uh, that's a dwindling thing and people are dying off. And, and the sad fact is there were very few post-millennial future oriented Presbyterians in that movement to begin with. Most of them that come in, especially the ones that are crying out about the social justice warriors and the cultural Marxists taking over, that is defeatist language. And most of those people are premillennial. They believe that they are kind of hanging on to the last thread of orthodoxy and faithful uh, theology for Christ. And the, everything's going to hell around them. And it's closing in fast. And they may be the last generation before Jesus comes back. That's the vast majority of that movement. So, but then again, so the neocon movement's the same way. So, from that perspective, it's the eschatology that's just as dangerous as the, the obliviousness when it comes to biblical social theory. Okay. Straight up. Look, uh, we're with Joel McDermott. Uh, this is the second interview that we've had at Reconstructionist Radio. Thank you for joining us today. This is the aftermath of the problem of slavery in Christian America. We have that justice for you at Reconstructionist Radio. Joel, uh, I, I know you got a lot of hate mail, man, uh, from the book, and, 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 and you're 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 a good man. You you don't you don't put anybody on blast. But uh, you have anything you want to share with us? Any anything uh, any particular hate mail that you'll share with us here from the problem of slavery in Christian America? I I really hate to disappoint you, but okay. I didn't bring anything to share. <laughs> um, but I tell I will tell you. First of all, if it's by email, I rarely ever see it. Um, I have those are screened, and and I have a wonderful support staff that takes care of, of both positive and negative emails. And if it's personal, if it's personal in such a way that, that I need to see it, it gets to me. But, but, but for the idiots who just want to spew, uh, I never see that stuff. So <laughs> unless I make a foray through the comments section on my articles, which I do quite often, um, I, I don't see them. And, and, but there I've realized that for the vast majority of it, it's the same handful of characters who keep coming back who are just angry because their idol got poked, okay, because yeah. their golden calf got knocked over and melted. Uh, they're really 
livid with me now. And I have, I've heard a social justice warrior is the beginning of it. I mean, I've heard that I've abandoned Christian reconstruction, abandoned theonomy. I've had abandoned, I heard just today that I have abandoned the reformed theology. I'm no longer reformed. (laughs) And uh, I've been called not a Christian. I've had all manner of evil things said about me. So, I mean, but I don't, I, I just, I've gotten to the point where I don't even respond to that. There was a wonderful article Gary North wrote several years ago called the tar baby factor when not to respond. And I really took that to heart at the time I saw it. And so I was well prepared for a lot of this type of stuff when it came that from many perspectives, from a personal perspective, from my own self-discipline with my emotions and, and my spirituality, but also from the perspective of my own time management. And when you really think about that, half of what, Half of our funding at American Vision comes from donors. And so if I start wasting my time responding mm-hmm. to all these idiots on Facebook, what am I doing to my donors? Okay, okay. I'm, I'm accountable to them. So I, I take that seriously, or at least I try to. And so, you know, the, the tar baby factor comes from the old Br'er Rabbit story where he, he was walking by and, and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear had created a baby made out of tar. And he starts trying to talk to it and it won't respond to him. So Br'er Rabbit gets angry and he ends up hauling off and punching this thing in the mouth and then he's stuck and then he he says well that's it i'm going to give it to you with the other hand and then both hands are stuck and the next thing you know all four limbs are stuck and it's a trap set for him and he of course he ends up escaping it in the long run because it wouldn't be a good story otherwise but don't punch the tar baby and so i kind of took that to heart very early i don't usually respond to negative emails i don't usually respond to negative comments and I don't uh, get involved in a lot of the controversy online. And it's not because I don't find it exciting. Well, there's two sides to that. Uh, you know, I'm not like Bojadar. I think he, he lives for that kind of stuff. And he likes it a little too much. Uh, but I think uh, it's a waste of my time. And I'm not being a good steward of my time if I do that. And the other side of it is the vast majority that want to pick those fights, they're incorrigible. There is nothing you could say on any topic, no matter how factual, that will change their mind. And so it's, it's doubly a sink on my time. So I, I just don't go there. And I found out that people who are true seekers usually come in a private message and ask me a question or want to read a book or, or want to know what they should read, stuff like that. So that's my advice, especially to the, a lot of you young reconstructionists today and whatnot to the younger generation, don't embroil yourselves in these controversies. You know, get off and learn, read some books, learn, spend some time. And for myself, I save those kind of interactions for things that I think are high dividend paying. So if I can have a debate with somebody that's got a profile, okay, here's a place where we can get an audience and hash this issue out and let both sides of it be heard. And some, you know, maybe there's some, some uh, reward to it, not personal reward, but in the sense of productivity. And uh, just like this, just the other day, I, I accepted a debate with uh, an atheist uh, come this November. And I, I don't debate atheists. I, I would never get involved. But I think here, here's a chance. And I think there's something to this, that there's going to be a platform and a particular guy has got a particular slant is going to make for helpful viewing for a lot of people. So I'll take that. I think it's a good thing. So. But no hate mail. I get my share of it, 
And if people want to see what kind I get, they can just go read the comment section at uh, American Vision. And if it were up to me, I would delete all those. To me, it's trash. It's utter trash. And it's just polluting the Internet with trash. But but I leave it there so that some people can see the true nature of the people who oppose what we're teaching. And for the most part, people read them, and it speaks for themselves. It's like when this book came out, when Problem of Slavery in Christian America came out, the these Kenist uh, racist group they they wanted they went to Amazon immediately and tried to bomb it with negative reviews and I read them and I was like these are all one star reviews and that's not cool but they speak for themselves I mean it's like you just just let the guy talk and he, you're giving him rope to hang himself with it's just it's just fascinating to watch how stupid they can be when it comes to PR. And so uh, I was encouraged by that. And so I leave them up because let people read them by, by all means. I've had people come to me and say, I, I, I vehemently oppose what you're teaching, but, but I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> so it's been very helpful, I think, yeah. in the long run to let them speak for themselves. And I'm, I'm, of, the, I'm of the attitude here. Uh, don't, wait, 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 wait. Speak into the mic. Speak very clearly for everyone to see. Yeah. Awesome. So look, recently at Reconstructionist Radio, we've been focusing on taking the message of biblical justice to the least in society. And if we want to have, if we really want to make America great again, we need to offer biblical service to those who are on the Moloch state plantations, which is why this book is so huge. The wards of the great society, no matter what kind of melanin they have in their skin, you know, regardless of that, if we're going to win the culture, we need to win the hearts of those who have been denied justice. Uh, the problem of slavery, like I said, just been absolutely huge in this regard. Talk about the doors that this book is open for you. Uh, perhaps something maybe that you didn't expect. And we have about uh, 15 minutes remaining. Well, that's that was one of your questions you sent me that I had the toughest time with. Uh, obviously, there are doors. I've had I've met new people. I've uh, talked to people from different perspectives. I've had a lot of people write me and say, you know, this really opened my eyes to all of American history, not just Southern partisans, but people who were pro-Jefferson, didn't know what he did with breeding slaves. So a lot of people like that. But I've had people who were kind of Southern partisan write me back and say, well, this really challenged me. And one guy comes to mind who, who said, yeah, I, I started having lunch with a or he built a relationship with a local black pastor. It's turned into a great friendship. And, and it's really, he's really learned a lot. And I think that kind of thing can happen all over the country, can bridge some of the divide that's happening and get rid of some of this polarity, this polarism between um, um, black Christians who are speaking primarily on social issues from a leftist perspective because they've got no other body, no one else on their side. And, and white Christians who have completely polarized the opposite saying, oh, we're not going to talk about that issue. That's just pure Marxism or whatever. Uh, if you can start to bridge that with biblical law, you, you save the conservative side of it and the inerrancy of Scripture and all the stuff we hold dear. And at the same time, meet the need that's being basically almost begged for, on the side, and rightly so, on the other side. You can bridge that gap. You can do it. So I'm seeing a little bit of that here and there. I've met a few ministers, black ministers, who are you know kind of kind of open to a relationship with me. I think because of that, um, 
but but honestly, this is something that's still developing. Uh, there, I, I I I didn't even have grandiose ideas when this started. I knew this would take a while. Uh, the, the immediate result I was talking about was that wedge I talked about earlier being driven in our own camp, and that I wanted to happen for various reasons. But the, the, as far as making friends and opening doors among the black community or things of that nature, that's slow going. And it, it has been an education to me in the sense that it shows how hurt some of these people are that they're really, I mean, here comes a white guy suddenly out of the blue talking about, you know, we want to reach out to you people. They're wary and they're wary of, 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 of just reaching out and grabbing every white hand that reaches out to them. And that's been an education for me because I'm like, you know, okay, now I can understand that. And I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, I went into a secular black group and tried to share my book with them. And I was, I was surprised at the negative backlash I got from them. And that was an education for me. Not, not that I condone their perspective, but to, to, to hear the hurt and the pain, because some of them were like, why do you want us to relive the trauma? We're not the ones that need to read that book. Go give that to your white friends. They're the ones that need to read that book. And so I understand that 100%. Uh, if I had this information before my grandmother died, we would have had a better chance to win her to Christ. Wow. Wow. Uh, and, and I hear a lot of those comments, too. So, I mean, I, I, it's been an experience for me. It's been a spiritual growth experience, and it's, it's led me to think, you know, how can, I, how can I teach this message in more effective ways? So, um, so like wow. I said, that's a slow-going thing, opening doors. Wow. Um, wow. Um, wow, that's powerful. Uh, we are on a Facebook Live forum for those that are going to listen later on the podcast. Uh, this is the uh, Joel McDermott second interview that we've had at Reconstructionist Radio, uh, the aftermath of the problem of slavery in Christian America. Um, yeah, so I narrated this book for Reconstructionist Radio, and uh, you can go at reconstructionistradio.com, type in the problem of slavery in Christian America, and listen to this book, download, listen to it for free. Um, it was probably the most difficult ministry relate i mean pro, i don't i hate that you know i'm in ministry and this is not ministry but this this is one of the most difficult um projects that i've ever undertaken i mean i've been i'm an activist man i go out there i've been mobbed by pagans outside of the murder mill this is nothing nothing compared to this um you know how how hard how hard was this i think i know the answer to this question but just for our audience uh, how hard was this for you to write and which was the most difficult chapter and why Yeah, uh, it was very difficult to write in many ways. Uh, just the just the intellectual side of it was taxing um, uh, to write a good scholarly book. Uh, when I say good, I'm not patting myself on the back. I mean, like, thorough. Uh, that was taxing to me, but the spiritual dark side of it was difficult, and I've told this story many times before, and I think even in our previous discussion with Bill, that there were multiple times in writing this book I had to stop because it was just like depression came over me. I mean, when, when you're reading uh, some of the torturous instances, just the, the, the beatings and whippings of pregnant women and things of that nature and almost like taking relish in it, that stuff's dark. It takes you to a dark, twisted place. And 
you know, when, when you're expending energy in writing and a lot of people don't realize it takes a lot of energy to do scholarship. It, it really drains you that you're doing that and you're doing it on a very dark subject. And when it hits you at certain points that this was real, this was human. This was, this was like you or your wife taking this. Uh, this was like you standing outside the hut while your wife was raped by one of the, the, the men on the plantation or something of that nature. This is you and you can't do anything about it. You have to choose between dying or brutal torture yourself or standing there taking it. What do you do? I mean, and there's just this overwhelming darkness, but also in the, in the writing of the laws, just kind of this nonchalant way these guys wrote laws to make sure the slaves stayed slaves and, and then patted themselves on the back to be good Christians afterwards, you know? Well, oh, well, we, we didn't, we did not foresee, excuse us. We did not foresee that if a slave gets baptized and becomes a Christian, they may seek their freedom. So we need to write a law that says baptism doesn't change the status of permanent slavery. Sorry. You thought you were going to get your freedom, but you don't. And, and then it's, it's almost like, oh, thank, thank, thank God we took care of that problem. Oh, and by the way, we just want to make sure everybody knows this law. So we're going to write another law that says this has to be read from the pulpits twice a year and stuff like that over and over and over again. And, you know, when, it, when it, the, the, the whole history of the police powers, when it comes to immunities, the uh, basically the, the law that says if if I feared for my life because he reached for his waistband or something like that comes directly out of the old slave laws. That if you were a hunting a fugitive slave and all the way back into the 1600s and certainly into the early 1700s, if you were hunting a fugitive slave and you felt threatened, you could kill that guy on the spot. And at first he had to have been carrying some form of a weapon they would later revise the law to say, well, he didn't even have to carry anything. If you just feel threatened, you can shoot him dead on the spot. And, and you'll be immune. Oh, and by the way, the public treasury will reimburse the master for the loss of his property. And this has to be read from the pulpits twice a year. And these people thought they were a Christian society. Now, you know, the, the, the almost like just positivity and elation with which these these problems were taken care of by the legislatures of that time is dark stuff. And you write you write the history of it, and you realize, and you think, number one, these were human beings that, that were suffering from this nonsense. Number two, we're still suffering from the same type of law, and most people don't know it. Most Christians would defend it. And num- and three is a uh, is it's just insane the level of of the level to which this stuck with us throughout history. It, it was terrible stuff. And okay, so I botched number three. Sorry, I forgot it. Anyway, but the number of things that happen of this nature, we and we still celebrate them today, or we whitewash over them. All of it difficult to write. And the more you write it, the more it compounds. And there were several points where I had to stop and say. I was just overwhelmed emotionally and I would stop and I would literally just drop my hands from the keyboard and slouch in my chair and literally feel like a spiritual depression had come over me and I would sit there. Now, which chapter was the most difficult to write? They were all like that. 
They all had those moments. But I'll flip the question around for you. When I wrote the chapter on Dabney, chapter, I believe it's nine or ten in the book, where at the end of that chapter, I won't spoil it, but it really was like driving a stake through the heart of Dracula. And my wife will tell you, I, I finished writing that in my chair at home, and I came up for bed that night, and it was like a spiritual in, in rapture had happened. It was just like this weight has pulled off my shoulders. I had been holding on to that kill shot for the whole of the book. I knew where it was going to go. And all of those spiritual depressions, all of that torturous stuff to write, built up to that moment. And when I wrote those final paragraphs, I felt like uh, the weight of millennia had been lifted off my shoulders. And I came upstairs and my wife just saw I was glowing and she said something to me. And I said, I feel like I've, I've just been born again, again. It's just the most wonderful feeling to be able to drive that stake through the heart of that Dracula. Yeah. And, and so in a way, all the chapters were bad to write, including that one. It's got a lot of dark stuff in it, but that one was my favorite one to write because I was holding on to that punch. It was like, you know, it was like watching a George Foreman fight that goes 10 rounds until he got him right where he wanted to. And that one punch knocked the dude out and he'd been holding on to that the whole fight waiting for that moment. That's kind of the way I felt. It was just waiting for that moment. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't just, it doesn't just completely, it doesn't, it doesn't just, uh, it's not just a positive argument against Dabney. What you did in that chapter was absolutely dismantle any shred of credibility that that man had and showed that at best, uh, he was emotionally disturbed and mentally, you know, uh, wrought with a with a challenge that could not be overcome. Uh, how long were you holding yeah. on? Now, I'm not going to ruin it, but how long were you holding on to that first quote for? Oh, I don't have it quantified. It was months. It was certainly so was months. At the beginning of the scholarship or at the end? Me for Do what? Okay. At the beginning of the scholarship for the book, at the beginning of the research, or at the end of the research, did you have that? Yeah, it was near the beginning, because one of the earliest things I did was sit down and read Dabney's Defense of Virginia, and then start researching some of his stuff. And when I found the other material, I was like, this guy is a conscious liar. He he was a conscious liar when he wrote the defense, and he knew it. He knew it, and I was going to make that clear. So did. Um. So, yeah, but I had one of the first things I did was read through his defense of Virginia and through her the South. And I took probably 20 pages of handwritten notes just going through that. And there, I mean, I could have written a book that was just a response to him and it would have been 600 pages. But it it is it came out as it came out, which I think is a far better book than that would have been. But but definitely that was a very early thing. And I, I hung on to that for many months. Wow. And uh, that, that, that was fire. That was that was just that was fire. Because um, I, I was I was like, I didn't know who who said that. And I was like rooting for that guy I was like that guy. Now, there was one Presbyterian that stood up. It was it was crazy. You'll have to you'll have to get the book to to find out what I'm talking about right there. I have a couple questions from headquarters and I don't want to uh, I don't want to ignore these. But I also would like to get through these real quick. Um we're almost we're almost at the end here. Joel McDermott's second interview, Reconstructionist Radio, Joe Salon, War Room. Um, 
So I, I did this podcast on what I believe would be a good practical application of the problem of slavery in Christian America, talking about uh, I, I played off the white guilt principle a little bit. Maybe I indulged too much there um, because I'm not a proponent of white guilt. I'm a proponent of covenantal guilt. Um, but, you know, using it to expect accept responsibility uh, for covenantal violations and then, uh, you know, repairing the breach. I, simple biblical application right there. And, uh, you know, if we don't do this, we'll never take power from the pagan state. Power comes from service to the least in the kingdom of God. And if you're post-mill, you want to serve the least. You want to find out who the least is, especially those that we've created, you know, our, our predecessors in the, in the faith have created. And we want to serve them. Um, the covenantal lesson, you know, must be learned and corrected in action. You know, so a group uh, of retons who, uh, you know, names aren't important right now, but, you know, who I previously, I, I, you know, I didn't. I have expect anything bad from them. I, you know, I looked up to them. Uh, you know, they opposed me, and I learned that they actually had a kinist speaker the whole time that they opposed that podcast I did on Daniel Nine, saying I have I don't have this white guilt or whatever the case. I don't. I'm just. Well, I didn't do anything. I didn't ever owned any slaves. I never did any of this. You know, darn it, Joe. Why are you? You're, this is going to be the dagger that's going to destroy Reconstruction. I'm, I'm just Joe Salon. I'm running my mouth about how I think we can apply Joel's book. I'm an activist, man. I ain't a scholar. Tell me what I got wrong. And and so it was kind of a weird sort of discussion. And it's on, you know, it's, it's on Reconstructionist Radio. Y'all can, if y'all feel like posting in the, in the comment section, y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, um, but they had a Kenneth Speaker book the whole time that they were confronting me about this. And I was like, wow, I'm still kind of angry about it today. Just like, I'm like, what? you got to, you can't, you know, whatever. So um, I'm convinced this is more than just a blind spot. Bo Marinoff recently did an ax to the root about it, about measuring your guilt down to the ounce. And it was yeah. demonstrating the absurdity of such a claim. Um, I think this is about power religion, man. I think this is about power religion, that this is, a, this is part of this religion for them. Um, do you agree? Is it a blind spot? with these second generation or first generation reconstructionists on this, on this issue? Um, uh, well, I think it's a lot, it's, it's much more complex than that. I think this is my honest take on it. And I, I, I didn't really prepare for this question much. I will say we should probably do a whole show on it and really pick it apart. It's a complex thing. I don't think they're dishonest. I, I think they're deceived when it comes to that particular kinest speaker. I do think that they didn't know his kinism was not well revealed up to that point. Okay. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. I, I don't know. It's, it's worth looking into, but I, I wouldn't hold them accountable for being kinist themselves unless they confessed to it or showed some clear evidence of it. What happens I think is people, is it power religion? I think that's the case. When you look at what power religion is, it's just idolatry. When our idols get poked, when our idols get pushed over, we tend to want to protect them, especially if it's something we hold dear or if there's we look at it like they would look at that guy and say, well, 99 percent of what he's done is great. And we just disagree with him on this. And they want to hold on to that that paradigm. But when you're really poking hard on that idol, say this is not just a blind. This is this is something that really needs to go. And you need to take a stand on it. Uh, that becomes a spiritual fight for them. Um, I think they and a lot of the people who supported them um, are doing a very bad thing by not backing up and repenting when they had the space to do so. 
because it creates a, a bad paradigm going forward. Uh, there's a lot to be said um, going forward. Now, what about white guilt? I'm with you. I don't like the phrase white guilt. Never have. I don't like the phrase white privilege. Um, nevertheless, I understand what the people who see something in that are saying. And I don't just reject it. Oh, that's Marxism. And then polarize myself clear on the opposite side of, a, of an argument because that doesn't solve anything. It makes it worse. And it hands the debate over to the liberals. It hands us into God's courtroom for judgment. Uh, I believe in covenantal guilt. And something I always say about that is the people who deny that they have any covenantal responsibility for what we did in the past, what our ancestors did in the past, also just happen to be the first people who are standing there saying, hey, don't tear down my statue. That's our heritage. All right. You can't have both. If the one of them represents your heritage and we need to hold on to the good that it represents, then it also represents the evil that it did, and you're responsible for that heritage as well. So be consistent. Go one way or the other. The other factor there is when it comes to white privilege, and like I said, this is something that needs to take place, a, a, a longer discussion between us. And I haven't got all my views thoroughly sorted out where I want to say them, but I would say this. White privilege uh, exists, but it's not privilege. It's what we call liberty. It's what we call freedom. The problem is we, we enjoy that at a certain level, and we don't question it. It's the status quo for us, and it should be. The problem is we don't recognize that our black brothers and sisters don't enjoy it to the same level, and that shouldn't be. And so relatively speaking, a person who's oppressed like that can look up and say, boy, that person's really privileged. In reality, all it is is we've got the status quo, and they don't. They have a different status quo. The same is true with how we view history, and I've preached on this before. As all we need to do is open up the doors, take away the burdens, reach out the hands, and start giving them the same freedom, the same standards, everything else we would want for ourselves. And you will hear this talk of white privilege begin to disappear, or you will hear it completely relegated to the utter fringes of the truly Marxist world, and where you don't have to worry about it anymore, okay, where, where it's three academics who, who are the only three that write in their academic journal. You don't have to worry about them anymore. Okay. Yeah. And so, but, but there is a phenomenon there. It is a relative thing and it needs to be dealt with. And it's it really, all it is, is extending the standard of Liberty we want for ourselves to them civilly by law, also socially. And in terms of the things that go under the color of law that aren't really cool. Like, like I described the, the law with the, the killing of the slaves earlier now is, is enjoyed by all police officers today. Yeah. And, we all, we're all affected by it, and it shouldn't be. shouldn't be. So there's a lot to be said about this, again, as a longer discussion. Um, uh, and, and as far as what happened up in, with the guys in Pennsylvania, I think it's extremely unfortunate. Uh, I think the people who had a chance to speak out and have remained silent uh, have brought great shame upon all of us because biblical law is on our side. And not stand up for biblical law on this issue for whatever reason is terrible, is terrible.
It's embarrassing, man. I'll tell you that right now. I, you know, as a, a speaker and a musician who traveled the country uh, doing uh, conservative events and things like that, I'll tell you one thing, man. This is for like the current uh, American civic religion flag waving idolater circuit. I said this before, um, if it was found out that a speaker was booked that had openly racist views like that on marriage, that your skin color determines who you can marry or something like that, yeah. I'll tell you yeah. what, not only would that speaker be taken off the schedule just like that. I mean, these are the blind evangelifish. Not only would that speaker be taken off the schedule just like that, but whoever booked them would no longer have a job with that organization. And so a lot of the people that watch my stuff today and are like, oh, Joe flew off the deep end. He's like a Christian reconstructionist now and all that kind of stuff. A lot of these people were like up all the way. Like I could tell they were silent with my podcast when I was smashing on police, when I was smashing for the right kind of law enforcement, uh, prisons, abortion, genocide against the pro-life movement, all the kind of humanistic elements of what they used to do, what we used to do. I could tell they were kind of like, whoa, maybe Joe's right. Maybe we got this wrong. Like that was really kind of the more the most the majority of this discussion. When this came to the forefront and they're hawking my Facebook page, they said, oh, man. You have no right to talk to me about anything that has to do with police. Look what you guys got in your camp. Are you serious? You got who with a what speaking about what? Wow. Yeah. And it was mm -hmm. just, it was, it was really, it's humbling. It's embarrassing, man. Um, but at the end of the day. And that's, Joe, that's exactly why I said this wedge had to be driven. Okay. And I'm sad to see those guys falling on the other side of that fault line, but that fault line had to be created. That wedge has to be driven and we need to keep whacking on that wedge until it drives us to as far as the East is from the West, because the people who truly need to be ministered to and the people whose hearts can truly stand to be changed will hear the message, but not if we're attached to that nonsense, not if we're tolerating that nonsense. You know, we, we just absolutely destroy our credibility if we're tolerating, you know, even the slightest uh, racist nonsense, let alone the Nazi element that comes with it and, and the, the stand, the neo-Nazi element. I mean, it's just crazy. It's, cra the, it's those just are the, crazy. They're like if whenever all, all, on this kind of stuff, you look at the comment section and you look at the profiles of some of these guys who are against your book or against what we yeah. did with those cats in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. You look at it and it's like these people exist and they have a voice and they're like liking posts from people yeah. who like, I thought were my friends and are on the, I'm like, wow, this is nuts. Anyway, look, okay. Yeah. Hard question. How, and let how me, let me, let me just add, that's why so I said long, earlier, huh? Real, real quick, real quick. Yeah. That's why I said earlier about the negative comments, all those profile pictures you see that are saying those things that have the rebel flags and the picture of Stonewall Jackson and all that, you know where they're coming from. And the truth is that there's only a few of them. There's only a few of these outspoken guys online, and if you ignore them or block them, your life is so much more simple, and, and you, you don't give them the opportunity. Facebook can be the great equalizer for a lot of evils that are in reality, they're, they're minorities out there that, that can be easily handled. And I'm like Gary North used to say, the, 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 block, the delete button is just as useful as this, how do you put it? The delete button is the same size as the comment button. Yeah. Use it. OK, and and that's the remedy for a lot of this crap. OK, uh, yeah. I, I used to feel bad about that because I was like, I've got a public ministry here. and Maybe these people really need to hear what I say. And I I a long time ago just grew a quick, short temper with that nonsense on certain issues, certain nonsense. Boom, you're gone. 
my life simpler and I'm not doing anybody a service by keeping you around. I'm doing a whole lot of people a service by kicking your butt on down the line. So, so, so let's do that. I encourage everybody to do it. Block these people, get them out of your life. They're contributing nothing. They don't have any intellectual firepower. They have no argument. They do nothing but obfuscate. They put nonsense out. They will, they will repeat the same lines from the same things that have been refuted since the 1970s in scholarship. They will repeat the same names. You'll hear Fogel and Ingerman's book brought up. You'll hear a few lines brought out of, uh, oh, who is the, the big Marxist who later changed uh, that endorsed uh, Doug Wilson's book? I forget his name off the top of my head. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest names in, in slavery scholarship. You'll hear a few lines from him, but not the whole thing. All of this stuff's been refuted for years. Even, I know I'm telling you stuff and in your audience you haven't heard, but there's a book quoted by Fogel and Ingerman called Time on the Cross. These guys quote this thing profusely to refute me. But guess who refuted that book, all right? Fogel did. Fogel came back and published another book in which he retracted most of the things he said. And these guys don't even know it. They won't even, they probably haven't even read or even know about the book. But the scholarships kick this stuff down the line for a long time now. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. And I don't want to take your time. But this stuff, block these people. They've got nothing positive to contribute to the discussion. They've proven themselves incorrigible. Quit wasting your time and resources. And the people who are depending upon you and your ministry who need your time and resources, you're taking away from them by giving these guys a platform. And, I, and I'm ashamed of the friends of mine who keep giving these guys a platform and keeping them around, it, it destroys your credibility by doing that, especially when you try to be friends with them and act like, oh, well, we're all really just brothers on down the line. No, it's, it, you've got to draw a line, and you're going to find yourself on one side of that fault line or the other. Amen. Yeah, we have a policy of Reconstructionist Radio. It's just a no-tolerance policy. We will block any, any kinist or racist or whatever the case might be. That is a very good word. Um, Okay, let's let's get into our 90 second answer answer segment as we're wrapping this up. Uh, and this is a tough question 90 to go 90 seconds. seconds on, but just just real quick, Dr. McDermott, um, how how come we let this go on for so long? How could Christian Reconstructionists tolerate such? We're the ones with the illumination in the time of darkness. We have the real Reformation principles. City on a hill, bam, bam, bam. How can we let this go on so long? In Christian Reconstructionism. Yeah, huge question. Obviously, there's some quotations in Rush Dooney that support some of this stuff. Uh, Rush Dooney was really theologically inconsistent on this point, and he allowed himself to be carried away by the cultural norms on some occasions. Uh, he was a subscriber to Mankind Quarterly, which is a, a racist anthropology journal. He appropriated some ideas from it, uh, and, and that because it come under the guise of, of being scholarly. I'm not apologizing for him. It was a bad decision. Some of the things he said were wrong. The thing is, if you get into his systematic theology and other places, he absolutely pulls the carpet under, out from under his own views. So if you follow Rush on certain applications, he's absolutely dead wrong. If you follow Rush on his systematic theology and his, and his ideas, his ideology, uh, he's on our side 100%. And, and so I, I think you've got to be careful there. Uh, I, I do still take him very seriously. He's great on many issues wrong on that one. Uh, but the other place it was tolerated was in the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of the U.S. and the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly. There a lot of former Southern neo-Confederate types in those denominations. Um, 
And one of the people who gave it the most cover, I think, unfortunately, was Joseph Moorcraft. And I think he regrets doing it. At least that's what he told me. I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't say that in public, but I think it'll come out eventually that he, he, he allowed those people under his ministry to prosper uh, blindly. And uh, under this kind of romantic view of the old Southern Presbyterians. Now, since then, I found a book that he published, the Lectures on the South, and I think most of it's just partaking of that lost cause mythology. It is utterly deceived. And so Moorcraft and a lot of the people who taught with him and by him were utterly deceived on the true nature of the South. Uh, either that or they were being radically dishonest, which I'm not willing to charge them with yet. But I do know that uh, since he was run out of his denomination into Hanover Presbytery over separate issues. That denomination has now blown up over the Southern slavery issue. And my book was involved in this. And two of the ministers, one of them preached a sermon still on sermon audio that, that he literally said Southern slavery as it was practiced was biblical and tried to sustain that argument that caused a rift through the denomination. It split down the middle and two of the ministers resigned before they could be excommunicated for it. And they are now residing as ministers in the, in the RPC GA, which has got, you know, from my perspective, has got serious issues on that as well. So um, anyway, this, these people have been sheltered in that denomination. They were sheltered under the ministry for a long time of Moorcraft and the, the, the love that they showed to Dabney and Thornwell and all those guys, it was a terrible, terrible mistake. And I hope it would be publicly repented of. Uh, but that's not my doing. I've got other things to do besides chase those guys around. Amen. Looks like some of these uh, denominations need to drain the swamp. That's for sure. Um, awesome. Awesome. Look, I got a question from headquarters real quick. Uh, 90 seconds. What similarities do you see in writing laws to keep the slave slaves and, and laws written to stop the migration of non-criminal sojourners? Our own Bojadar Marinoff has, wow. has a series in Reconstructionist Radio. On yeah. Uh, Bo might just be slightly radical for my taste, but I'm pretty close to that. My views have been published on biblical law on American Vision. You could search that and find them. Uh, I don't think we have any reason to stop immigration into this country. Uh, we have every reason, obviously, to stop criminals. But our problem in this country is not a, an immigration problem. Our problem is a welfare problem. Our problem is a welfare problem. And, and the greatest exchange on this, and I, 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 this is an issue I haven't spent a lot of time on. But there's a great exchange by Alex Norestra, who's a Cato scholar, and uh, crap, I'm bad with names, especially in the evenings. Um, who's the guy that has the talk show on Fox News in the evening? Uh, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. Great yeah. exchange between these two guys. And and you don't see Tucker Carlson gotten the best of very often, but but this guy did. And and he's a he's a real policy type wonk, strong on immigration. And he says, look, we have a welfare pro- problem. But even then, immigrants coming in don't get welfare for multiple years. Uh, but, but even then, if you, if, you, if you have a problem with that, you need to stop the welfare state and quit worrying about the immigration because that actually helps us in the net in the long run. Yeah, they're and propping they said, up. Why, why prop up the it. system? Why, not, why prop up the system that you say that you're against, the, uh, the welfare state, by saying that less yeah. people should be hanging on it, even yeah. if uh, immigrants did get welfare? 
which they don't. Um, good stuff. Most, Dr. most people don't realize that it was it was it was all status to the core from day one, and it was unions involved. It was other other liberal forces involved in writing uh, immigration laws back in the old days. But the the problem here is why do they want more state power? The more power they give the federal government, the more it's going to be used against you when it swings back to the liberals. I mean, all they did was complain about Obama and his pen and phone. They couldn't stand executive orders when he was in office, and now they can't get enough of them. They're begging for executive orders to close the borders or whatever else. Don't you realize that the more you beg for a big government, the more it's going to come wrapped around your neck in, in eight years? And it's going to be wrapped around your grandchildren's neck, even worse. And it's something you've got to learn to get rid of rather than invite. And and what are the parallels between the slave laws? It ultimately all the all the uh, welfare state comes out of old slave law. It's on the same type of system. It's a downstream uh, effect. And but it doesn't matter whether it's immigration or abortion laws or it's uh, uh, banking laws, monetary theory, education. We can go on down the list, markets, uh, tariffs, on down the line. Every bit of it is based on the old. It's not, it's not like, oh, we took the slave laws and rewrote them, but it's all the same system. You're appealing to these governments to, uh, to bring you what you want instead of develop them through voluntarism and the free markets, which is what biblical law is really all about. And we need to be destroying, destroying laws rather than trying to build more of them. This is one area we, we need to embrace this narrative, folks, all right? If you want to be a Christian reconstructionist, you need to get rid of more government than you need to increase, all right? Rush Juni said this. It would be the closest thing to a radical libertarianism that there is if we had theonomy. So I, I'm, I'm looking at this and saying we need to be deconstructionists as much as we are reconstructionists. And that, that, that needs to be a, a, a point Point number one, maybe even, in, in our way of doing things, that we need to be critics. We, we need to be critics tearing down these idols. And, and that is what Paul says that. The, the spiritual man judges all things. That word in the Greek means to cross-examine. We are the prosecutors of the idolatry in this world. We are to take it to them. And so we need to be deconstructing as much of this nonsense as possible. Before, before or maybe simultaneously reconstructing things in this place. So that's not a 90-second answer. Sorry, but it's an answer. No, but it was it was fire, though, and it was a good exhortation right there. Um, all right, so wrapping this up right now, uh, you have a new podcast out, Dr. McDermott, um, the Devoted yes. Word Podcast, and it is fire. If you're in one of those <laughs> churches where – the pastor's just basically sprinkling y'all with milk every Sunday. You can go home and listen to the Devoted Word podcast. Tell us a little bit about the Devoted Word podcast. Yes, real quickly, the Devoted Word is, uh, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. I've had a lot of requests for doing podcasts, so I finally started one. I finally found a niche that I thought about for a long time. It's a niche I think I can fulfill that is unique. There's nothing else like it. It is going through the Bible, doing exegetical application on biblical theological themes and worldview application from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know anybody else who does much like that. Um, I'm, I'm doing it based on a video version, but it's also going to be available in, in audio, traditional uh, uh, podcast formats, iTunes and whatnot, so very soon. But there are several episodes already up on YouTube and, and in other places. 
But uh, the devoted word, of course, the word devoted comes from the theology of the Karam principle. I'll do a show explaining all of that coming up soon. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's kind of like my little mark on it. And it also, uh, I think, is fitting. So Genesis to Revelation, exegesis, biblical theology, worldview application. And I think if you, if you watch the first few, you'll get a flavor for what's, uh, what's to come. And really, we're still in Genesis 1 laying foundations that will be used and repeated all through scripture. And uh, you're seeing some of that already, but there's hardly an episode goes by in which uh, some passage out of the first chapter of Genesis doesn't end us up in the 22nd chapter of revelation because it's the same place. It's the same place. And a lot of people don't realize it. Mm. Dang. Oh, that's a great teaser right there. Uh, We will be linking that to uh, on the website, on our Facebook page, devoted word podcast. Absolutely. 100% amazing resource hopefully we can have you back on to talk about that and uh let's get a closing exhortation man tell us tell us what we can do man speak to us from your ivory tower bro what, what, what do you have for us what, <laughs> what can we do and that's obviously tongue the greatest right? thing you can do <laughs> the single greatest thing you can do is go to american visions website browse our store donate to support our cause support our ministry uh that helps us keeps us going becoming a monthly supporter of the ministry helps us probably more than any single thing because it gives us a dependable projection about what's to come. And uh, so, so that's one way you can help. I exhort you to do that. <laughs> but uh, as far as the, the issues we're covering, you got to read the book. I, I, I met a dear saint lady in, in our church, in our church, Midway Presbyterian here in Marietta, Georgia. And, um, uh, been a Southern partisan all of her life, Southern Presbyterian, came up to our colleague, Gary DeMar, said, what, what do you think about this book Joel's written? And he was like, well, I, I think it's pretty good. And she's like, but you don't agree with him on everything he said, do you? And he says like, well, you, you got to go check out the footnotes. I mean, it's pretty well documented. And he said, have you read the book? And she was like, oh, no, 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 I haven't read the book. <laughs> oh, wow. And th- I've gotten that comment from more people than you might imagine. I can't stand what Joel McDermott is doing with this. Well, have you read the book? Well, no. <laughs> well, okay, go read the book. And and by the way, there's a tremendous sale going on right now in the American Vision store. So you might pick it up on a good deal along with a bunch of other things. But read the book. And when you read it, it will change your life one way or another. You will be among the 80% of people who read it and say, wow, it was, I knew it was bad. I never knew it was that bad. This is life altering. Or you'll be among the 15% who say, I didn't know any of this stuff. I'm utterly shocked. This has changed my life. Or you will be among the 5% who say, I hate Joel McDermott. I'm so angry after reading this book, I'll never read another thing he says again. Uh, and that's, that's fine. Those 5% can go do their thing. But this book will change your life. It changed my life writing. And uh, I think you can attest to that and several other people. That has been yeah, by I, far the single greatest comment I've gotten back is, is wow, this was eye-opening. And I've even had many, not many, I've had several black Christians who know their history read this book and say, wow, I didn't know that, or it was worse than I thought. So uh, there, there's a lot going on here. I would exhort you to just get into the material, engage it, listen to it, and then let it take you where it will. You may become a supporter of, of my cause, 
it may change you to become an abolitionist and get involved in Project Frontlines at the public schools, or it may get you involved in in church repent or some other thing like that. But uh, yeah. uh, but uh, it, it will engage the material, engage the text, and and let it lead you uh, where it does, and it will lead you somewhere. It will change your life. That much I will promise you. Amen. So get on to AmericanVision.org, donate, become a monthly contributor. Uh, also go to Reconstructionist Radio, download the um, the audio version of the uh, Problem of Slavery in Christian America. If you have not purchased your own copy, definitely go on and do that. That is essential. Uh, Dr. Joel McDermott, thank you so much for stepping into the war room with us. Um, I'm yeah. sorry for everybody that's been commented. There have been some questions that are unanswered. We'll try to get in there and answer those as well. We are out of time. Actually, if you Dr. make a McDermott, list of those, I'll... If you'll make a list of those questions that didn't get answered, I'll answer those in an article. Oh, Spire, man. Thanks so much, Dr. McDermott. Also, Devoted Word Podcast. Definitely check it out. Thank you for uh, joining us in the war room today. Thank you all for for signing on. Much love to the whole Thomas Nation and Jeremiah Thomas. Uh, Love y'all. And uh, have a a happy rest of your Father's Day night. Have a great one, y'all. Bye. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2. By my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Seeking to rid themselves of Christ's dominion. A theme that's true in any age. Oh, tell me why do the heathen nations rage? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.